So they take a back road to whatever God says. If he ain't speaking, then it's like, okay, well, what are we planning on? And it's something I call put together yet fully flexible. Like I like to be put together, know what's going on. But if God changes it, I'm not going to get stuck in the change. I'm going to go, okay, wad it up, throw it out the window. And now what are we doing? Stories stir the soul. Stories reveal. And stories heal. In this podcast, we will give you an inside look at someone who's had a life-changing breakthrough. Real people, real stories with real breakthroughs. As a health and wellness expert and coach and Todd as a men's mentor, we've seen firsthand what God can do when it comes to a breakthrough. So lean in, listen well, this could be your biggest breakthrough. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Your Biggest Breakthrough. I'm your host, Wendy Pett. I'm Todd Isburner. And we are excited to be here with you today. Yeah, you're going to really enjoy this episode, yes. the story of Aaron Jennings. Uh, but before we get there, I got to ask Wendy. So if if you believed you heard God say, Wendy, you and Todd need to sell everything. You need to pack up and head to the mission field. You think you'd do it? Well, I would say absolutely not. No, I'm just kidding. I would say, is that really God's voice I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. I think I think most of us would react that way, but not but not Aaron Jones and his wife. I want to say yes. Yes. You're gonna hear about how he responded and his wife responded when God told them to do that and what the outcome was. And he's gonna lead us into that story by just sharing a lot of stories about how he got to that place in his life using common sense and supernatural faith and the lessons he learned along the way. Yeah. And he has several lessons along the way. He's had multiple lives, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, his journey unfolds. And um, I think you will find it fascinating and how he's leaned in and leveled up hmm. uh, in his in his faith. Yeah. Towards the end of the interview, you're going to sort of take an inventory with him about how you're using the things that God has placed into your life and whether or not you're taking it seriously enough so that you can do something about it. So today's guest, police officer to full-time missionary, <laughs> actually was a motocross racer first. Yeah, pro. Well, you're going to hear that story. We don't want to give you all the details. And then he turned <laughs> to his systems and strategy coach, which is what he's doing today. And he's now on a mission to help kingdom entrepreneurs use systems and automation to scale, and most importantly, to take ground for the kingdom. Yeah. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to your biggest breakthrough, Aaron. We are so excited that you're here because you have a, a, a fascinating and inspiring story, but somewhat convicting, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. And we are excited and anxious to hear about the how and the why that uh, you went from a, a successful career as a police officer to a missionary to, um, you know, a systems and strategy coach. Yeah, you know, so Aaron, that's not a very common or predictable career pathway. I mean, I got to say, right? That, <laughs> that seems like a lot of jumping around. But but as we've gotten to know you, you, you credit God for taking you through these transitions or really breakthroughs. So why is that? What did God have to do with it? Well, everything. I mean, that's kind of a, it's a pursuing. If you're actually pursuing them or pursuing him, it's going to change a lot of the things you do easily. Mm -hmm. And if you keep that as the center of what you're doing, it will shape everything like which I'm sure we'll get into. But as we go through and we start sharing a lot of the details of what we do, it's it's all guided by that. Your story uh, would freak out a lot of people. <laughs> people want certainty, right? They, they, they yeah. want to know what's next. Exactly right. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, having to step out in faith. Well, I, I want you to back us up and start telling that story uh, of at least sort of the first major breakthrough that led you to where you are. But you'll have to give us a little history. So go back as far as you want 
maybe even to your family history to see how where you were and how you got to where you are. Well, I know I've done it in like a few minutes, in half an hour, in four hours. It just depends on where we're at. I know we don't have four hours, so I'll move a little quicker. Unless it's really compelling, we'll keep going, man. <laughs> oh, I could keep people for four hours, but you know we got stories for days. But we'll get oh, we'll man. get more more streamlined for today. Um, I was actually born and raised in a Christian home, so I grew up around um, religion, and not necessarily just religion. For me, it was like my parents were always very common sense and relationship. Right. It wasn't mm-hmm. like religion and school were the the end all be alls. It was common sense and relationship with God. And so um, I remember I switched churches in eighth grade and my parents followed me because I went and tried another church. And I was like, hey, you got to check this out. Like there there's more happening here, you know, and they followed me. So it was very much a I kind of grew up with a seek God and see what happens type of a thing. And if he says, do something, you do it. And uh, I grew up in a 2000 person town where a man's word was his bond. You know, you look somebody in the eyes and you shake hands and it meant something. And so I have a lot of that, right? That core belief of like, do what you say you're going to do. And if God says go or do anything, then you better be doing it. That's you why know, you and Todd get along so well. He is yeah. very much that same mold. <laughs> well, great. Right. What's, what's interesting though, Aaron, is that um, some of the, some people would see those two thoughts or words as juxtapositioning. So when you say common sense, but then relationship with God, which means follow him where he tells you to go. It's like, and it doesn't seem like right. it's common sense because it's way out there sometimes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> just comment on that because people might struggle with, well, I use my common sense. I'm not going to just jump out. And you know. right. My relationship with God is the only place I don't use the common sense. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there we go. Because <laughs> he's not yeah. common. He's no, not, common. not at all. With what I was talking about or referring to there in specific was more along lines of like school and business and things. My parents weren't like, go to high school, go to college, get a good job. It was, if you need college for what you want to do, then go get it. If you don't, then don't waste the money on it. It just doesn't make sense. So they were very common sense like that, Uh, like ways of the world type of stuff, right? Yeah. You remind me of the prophet Elisha. Because I have to say this for a moment, because Elisha was exactly that mix. He would... He would solve problems using sort of natural common sense solutions until they didn't work. And then he would have supernatural solutions because God would intervene. So that's Aaron Jennings, if you want to know the truth right there. <laughs> and that is tricky for a lot of people, right? Because being in systems and strategy now, coaching in that space, everything is like streamlined, smooth, systematized, predictable, duplicatable. And then it's like, as soon as we start going into faith i'm like yeah throw all that out the window now it's literally just like lord what do you want and just pick up and find yourself moving wow. it's like wow. you you kind of have to have a not dual personality as far as understanding you just have to be able to flip the switch there you go yeah. flip the switch there you go which all comes back to what's important there right mm-hmm. if god's always Amen. first then the common sense and the systems come second Amen. so they That's take good. a back road to whatever god says if he ain't speaking then it's like okay well, what are we planning on? And it's something I call put together yet fully flexible. Like I like to be put together, know what's going on. But if God changes it, 
I'm not going to get stuck in the change. I'm going to go, okay, wad it up, throw it out the window. And now what are we doing? Aaron, I, I think that that, first of all, is is amazing yeah. and beautiful because um, I think that that's very difficult for so many people. And mm-hmm. just to have that attitude of it's, it's trust, right? It's mm-hmm. like, God, mm-hmm. I just trust you. Like it doesn't make sense. And I thought I had it all planned out and on paper and it looked really good. Mm-hmm. And for you to just be able to wad it up and throw it out the window and say, all right, God, let's go for the adventure. Let's go for yeah. it. I, I love that. And I think that uh, there's such a, a greater life to be lived when we can live in that in that lane. So you you um, well, let's go back. Let's keep talking about your yeah. Because how, you, how did you get to that place? I mean, that just doesn't you know that snap happened your fingers. Overnight. Yeah, I barely got in here to the story. Come on, oh, no, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in a home like that, right? My dad was the director of a, a youth ministry called Teens for Christ for 17 years. And so I grew up with like Sundays, Sunday night, every Wednesday was youth. And then we went on mission trips. Um, I remember just even as, you know, the director's son, I was able to go on the trips that nobody could, you know, so I grew up like serving other people and doing that stuff. It was always important to me though. I remember like the way my parents taught it was like an actual relationship. It wasn't go to church because we tell you to and, Hmm. and help with the ministry because we tell you to, to me, I remember from like four years old. My parents found me in the hallway praying, asking God to come into my heart. And from from that point on, like for me, it was always important. So like I didn't smoke or drink or sleep around or anything um, when I was growing up in all through school. Um, And I was that kid that if somebody, you know, if the kids asked their parents if they could go do something and they're like, Aaron's going to be there. And then everybody's like, "Okay, it's fine. You can go. Because I was that good kid, if you will. I started racing motorcycles at 14 years old. And from five years old, I was like God and motorcycles, the two things that did not change for me at all. And at 14, I realized I went to my first motocross race and I woke up in the morning, races were on Sundays. And I thought, this is what I was created for. Like, there's no God here. There was no prayer. There was no banners. There was no stickers. There was no Sunday service. There was no devotions. There was no nothing. There was no glimpse of God at the motocross track. And at 14 years old, I was like, this is why I love motorcycles and God. Like, I'm supposed to be here. Huh. Yes. Yeah. It's like, it all comes together. Huh. I was so excited. And um, I remember somebody at my church telling me it was a worldly passion that I needed to let go of because mm. the races were on Sundays and I should be in church. Mm. And this is where the common sense comes in for me. I thought, well, if we're supposed to be reaching people and God's first, And I feel like since five years old, it was motocross and God. And I felt like this is where I was supposed to be. And now you, a person at church is telling me that I need to not worry about reaching the people there and come to church just doesn't make sense. (laughs) Like it just common sense doesn't dictate if I'm going to reach people that I'm going to do it from church. And so at 14 years old, I was like, well, I quit going to church because I raced every Sunday. I didn't quit my relationship with God but I couldn't attend church because I was traveling every weekend for races. So I'm curious, where, where were your parents in that scenario? Because with me, so they supported you in that to say that common at sense every decision. race. Wow. That's, yep. I mean, that's key. Do you think you could have continued on if you didn't have their support? Um, It would have been a lot trickier. Yeah. The reason I'm years old, you know, they were driving to the track yeah. and yeah. they were as much as I was having to pay for myself, they still helped out a lot. Yeah, the reason I mentioned is because there may be some parents who they're not sure that the track their kid is headed on is necessarily the best or the right one. There has to be some real discernment that's used there. And your parents obviously 
trusted God with you and trusted you because of the sort of the track record of good decisions that you've made. It was obvious that God was important to me. Hmm. And so, and I've always been vocal, you know, like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be, you know, and I, I immediately thought, what can I do here? I'm 14. I have a limited budget. Like my dad had me working from as soon as I got off school, you know, working and riding until Hmm. dark because he's like, if you're racing, you're paying for it. So I paid for my own bike. I paid me entry fees. I paid gas, like everything to get there. They helped out on surgeries because I couldn't cover that, but I had way too many of those to mention. Um, But it was important to me. And I saw it as like, God put me here. How do I use it? And so they were behind me and I started having stickers cut out, like verses cut out and put on my bike. They were just vinyl cut. Um, And my first year, Halfway through the season, I was unbeatable. I swept the whole second half of the season and I ended up winning the championship my first year out. Wow. Um, So I elevated my influence very quickly at the track. Mm. And then my second year, I only did half a year as an amateur and I went pro. And so I was like very quickly went from new guy Mm. at the track to everybody hanging out at my pit to, Mm. you know, which I was like, the faster I can gain influence, the faster I can talk Share about the gospel. Yeah. God. And I can show who I am to people and stuff like that. And so I had helmets custom painted at that point that had like a big Jesus freak holding the Bible on the back of it. And the verses on my bike were better. You know, I was only 16, but still like I had started making some money racing and things to where I could have a little nicer stuff. And so it was just elevating the influence and continuing to be there. Which is, just, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I love how bold you were and are, but were at even a young age. And so I think about uh, your boldness and, yeah. and the level in which you had the opportunity to influence others. Um, can you share with us, because I'm sure you can, a, a story or two of a couple uh, people that may have been influenced by you uh, and you were able to share the love of Christ because of, of where you were? Yeah. Well, let me back up a little, actually. Um for the parents that you were talking about with the kids, if my parents, and I do this with my girls now, if my parents, or if I say to my girls, you have to be in church, you have to love God, you have to do it this way. I'm instantly going to go the other way. It's just a natural tendency to run the other direction, especially as you're young and you don't know what you're doing, right? It's like, no, I have to try it. And so my parents were very um, supportive, right, of letting me try things. My dad would tell me, he's like, if you do that, there is a chance you're going to get hurt, but you get to decide. Mm-hmm. And I'd wake up in the hospital. <laughs> and it was, and he's like, didn't work quite like you thought, did it? And he like, lovingly did no. not say, I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, don't do that all the time. It was a, you need to try things. You need to, you know, do this. And so because of that, I was able to talk to my parents, you know, I told them, I was like, Hey, like, how could we do this? Like, how could I do this? You know? And I remember, uh, the Christian motorcycle association showed up to one of the tracks Mm -hmm. and I thought, Oh, cool. Finally, you know, finally Christians are getting it. They need to be out here. But I went over there and motocross is typically like 14 years old to mid 25 riding $6,000 motorcycles And everything was black and lifted trucks and tribal designs, you know, sponsored by monster. Then it's sponsored by, uh, monster energy now. Yeah. Yeah. And so everything's, you know, jacked up and cool looking and the Christian motorcycle association showed up and was like guys in their sixties and seventies riding $80,000 choppers. And they brought a baby blue easy up and they had a white table with an orange construction cooler. 
and they You're were like, passing this is out messing oval, with my vibe. Yeah, yeah they were over. passing out oval stickers that were baby blue that says my bike was blessed in oh, the year. Man. Yeah. And I walked over to talk to him. And as I got closer, I was seeing this stuff. And I was like, I just walked right by the table. But then I, I went and I talked to my parents. I was like, that's their representation in this world. Hmm. They think they're like, I, I didn't even want to talk to them because I didn't feel like they related to me. Hmm. And there's so much relationship going on, you know, that it's like, you have to have it in all areas. My parents were willing to let me try stuff. And so I would talk to them. I'd be like, they look ridiculous. Like the only reason I'd talk to them is because they're Christian, but they don't belong here. Yeah. You know, if I think that what's everybody else thinking? I, you know, Aaron, I, I love the fact that you loved motocross, but you loved God even more and that God combined the two together. So you really wanted to do well in that sport but you really want to represent Christ well. And I'm just thinking because you were, you're gaining influence and you're getting better and better at what you're doing, which gave you a, a better reputation and allowed you to be able to grab more attention for that. There are people who are in their jobs right now who sometimes feel like, you know, I, I think I've gone, I think I'm at the peak right now. I don't really have that much influence. Just talk to them for a minute because I see you just driving forward for excellence so that you have an opportunity to represent Christ. Can you, can you encourage someone who's maybe not quite there yet? How do I go about doing that? Well, this all comes back to like at the beginning when I said it has to be driven by remembering that Christ is actually first. Hmm. Because if you think your job's first, then there's no reason to overwork. You get paid to show up, just show hmm. up. Hmm. But if God's first, it says do everything as though you're doing it for the Lord. Hmm. Simple verse. It's cliche a lot, right? But it's one that I've held on to. So we do everything as though I'm actually doing it for the Lord. I really don't care what your opinion is because I guarantee you it's going to be awesome. And if not, I'll make it awesome before we're done because if I'm doing it for the Lord and you get to critique, well, that's fine. I can make you happy because I can make him happy. Yeah. And so like I've always looked at everything that way and it it has carried through jobs and everything else, but it is a constant, constant, constant mm. remind yourself of what the word says and what you believe in. Yeah. Because for me, that is first, period. And it's important to me that anybody who runs into me sees that that's important and that's first. Mm -hmm. And I have to remind myself because I've been sitting in jobs. Uh, I specifically remember, I think I was like 19 years old and I got a job at a company where it was literally all women and there was like four guys. So it was like 300 women in this office. It was like an insurance company. And from day one, we had the guys had to wear a tie and slacks. And the girls could kind of wear whatever they want. They're wearing like jeans and skirts or whatever they wanted to. And then they changed the dress code for the ladies to where they had to have a dress or like a pantsuit or something on. And for weeks, they just chipped their teeth, just like, this is ridiculous, you know, complaining. And the whole time I was like remembering, like the Bible talks about do everything as though you do it for the Lord. I'm getting paid to be here and do the job. I'm going to do the job. I'm not going to complain about the job. If I don't want it, I'll go get another one. And so they were just chipping their teeth the whole time. And then one of them asked me, like, Aaron, what do you think? I'm like, I had to wear slacks and a tie from day one. If you don't like it, go get another job or put on a dress. I mean, I really don't have anything else to say about it. <laughs> Never asked my opinion again. Yeah, yeah, right. But it mm -hmm. always come back to me of like, if God's got me here right now, how do I do a good job for him? Not complain about everything. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah. Cause God is a God of excellence and, and you represent that, uh, level of excellence and how you show up, uh, with serving others and with, with your work that you're doing now. Uh, but you, you were working for a while to, as you're talking through careers as a police officer. And so mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about that and, and your level of excellence there. And, and I believe you met your wife in, in that field as well. So let's kind of mm-hmm. go into uh, that direction. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, but you're, you're, you turned pro correct yeah. in motocross. Yep. And so you, you obviously made a transition somewhere and was a police officer for a number yeah, of years. So I raced pro for almost five years. Wow. And then um, I started to find my cap where I was like, this is kind of feeling like as big as I'm going to get. And I started to get burned out on just turning laps and everything else. And real quick, how many injuries did you have? I'm just curious. <laughs> I've had seven like major surgeries. Wow. Rebuilds. Wow. So I got screws in both knees, pin in my foot, my hands stapled together. Wow. Bunch of stuff like that. But, but it was um, a lot of fun when you went round and round really fast and won. Still awesome. I got all these stories from so much awesomeness. That's I mean, right. I'd That's do it right. again. <laughs> I still do it when I can get my hands on a bike. Yeah. That's cool. So I had started to kind of captain in motocross and um, started kind of looking for that next thing. And that was the year Carrie Hart threw the first ever backflip in the X Games on a motorcycle. And I thought, huh, freestyle might be cool. And so slowly over the next year, my track ended up getting pushed together into big jumps and I started hiring out doing freestyle shows. And then we built a metal ramp and started dragging it around places and, and getting paid to show up and do tricks Wow! and so do stunt shows. And um, so there was always kind of that adrenaline element. I had actually got married. So my wife now is my second wife. I actually went through a divorce and, and like, borderline suicidal and everything else, which I'll get into here, going to the police department, but coming out of the motocross and freestyle, it was like, I got married. Uh, my first wife, we dated for five years, did everything right. Put God first, had a church picked out, didn't sleep together before we got married, like waited till we were done with school before we got married. So we didn't have college debt, everything right by the ways of what our culture and society and our religion would say was right. And um, we talked about it all, about Christianity and how we raise a family and all this different stuff. And then four months after we got married, she just completely shut down on me. And I was on the police department. So that transition was, I love this adrenaline stuff. How do I get paid for it? Mm. Right. And my uncle was a cop when I was growing up. So I was always fascinated with that. I've always had a passion to help people. So it was kind of like, hey, I can do these dangerous things and get paid for it and help people all at the same time. Mm. It's a way that I can work this into adult life, if you will, right? Um, And so I got on the police department and got married shortly after. I think I was like 23, 23, 24 years old, somewhere right in there. Um, And then I was on the police department for five and a half years. And so that transition was really like chasing that adrenaline. You know, Mm -hmm. you kind of asked how do we get from motocross to that? It was that, you know, motocross isn't something you can do forever. It's kind of mid-20s to late-20s. You start to fade out of it because the body gets beat up enough, you got to switch. So I really found kind of that excitement, if you will, on the police department and that next stage of life. So I was just curious uh, about one of those stories when you were on the police department where the adrenaline rush was like through the roof, because you got to go fast in a police car with the sirens going off if you needed to, or you had to break into a situation to be the rescuer. Any story come to mind where you, you, you know, all those elements came together for you. And it's like, this is why I'm a cop. 
all these things are working for me. So, you know, it's funny. Um, I never actually got an adrenaline rush on the police department. You weren't going fast enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I actually, um, when I got on the police department, I, tra- I started training real heavily in mixed martial arts. Uh, so I did Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu and boxing for five and a half years. And I shot two to 300 rounds through my gun every single day for the first year and a half. Mm. I held an expert shooting badge on the police department and in five and a half years, two people outran me and one of them was on a bike. So that doesn't count. So I was quick and I could handle myself and I was like a good shot and everything. This was that excellence. You know, if we're going to do something, do it well, Mm. or don't do it at all. But with all of that, everything I was going through exactly right. We'd have hundred mile an hour car chases through neighborhoods that were like skinny streets. Um, Cause I worked in the, on the, in the hood at night on the weekends. So I didn't want to write tickets to hardworking people. I got in it to stop guns and drugs and things like that. So that's where I was at. Mm-hmm. I came out of the Academy and went straight to the hood at night. Um, but I had, we had hundred mile an hour car chases and the first, the first two and a half years It was five or six times every single night. It was pulling guns, car chases, foot chases, fights. It was just back to back all night long for two and a half years. And I never got an adrenaline rush. And I remember one morning I'd actually gotten a fight over a a gun in the front seat of a car. A guy tried shooting me one morning and I still was just level headed the whole time. We were fighting over his gun and he took off while I was half in his car. And so I had rolled off the back of the car. We had this big car chase. Everybody goes, oh man, I was like, it was awesome. (laughs) But I never got an adrenaline rush from that either. And one night I was at the hospital for something. I was actually talking to one of the doctors there. I was like, hey, curious. (laughs) I've never gotten an adrenaline rush and I've been over in a fight over a gun and car chases and everything else. You know, he's like, well, let me ask you something. Did you do much adrenaline stuff when you were growing up, like exciting things, this and that? I'm like, well, yeah, (laughs) I I raced pro motocross for almost 10 years between freestyle and this and, and stuff. He goes, oh, okay. So he says, just like anything else, if you work out, you get stronger, right? The more you work out, the more you can do. Adrenaline's the same way. You have a a natural ceiling to it. And if you push that, it raises, right? And then you keep doing stuff. If you push it, it raises. And then the problem is most people, when we're younger, we raise that adrenaline, that excitement. And then as we get older, we stop doing things and we never touch anything exciting again. Mm -hmm. He said, even while I was doing all of those things, I had never, I never pushed it to the point where I felt like I was out of my element. And so he said, um, if you've never gotten adrenaline rush, it's because you've never felt like you were in danger. Hmm. (laughs) And he's like, but trust me, if you ever feel like you are, you will find that ceiling. It will push through it and you'll get the dump that you need to to move on. But then he made the statement, which is kind of like what you just asked. Uh, He goes, honestly, sounds like you're kind of made for this. As I started looking around from that point, there's a lot of officers that freak out. You know, there's a lot of people getting a fight over a gun and they think, oh my God, I almost died. And then they carry that the whole rest of their life or they're not able to do their job, you know? And for me, it was just like, woo, that was fun. Exciting. I win. Being (laughs) being a level-headed police officer is what we want. (laughs) Right, right. As the community. Yes. Right. Yes. And so really like it, all of that stuff I did growing up actually made it to where like I never crashed patrol cars, even when it was snowing, because I was used to sliding cars around. I was never, you know, worried when we were doing hundred miles an hour. Cause I'm like, eh, I'm used to going fast in tight spots, you know, and, 
And so it kind of prepared me for everything that I was doing. I'm a fan of people pushing their limits because that's how you get better at handling those situations. Yes, it's going to be so interesting. Good. We're, we're going to move into how you became a missionary, but it's going to be interesting to hear how you would characterize what you're doing today uh, and whether or not there are opportunities for an adrenaline rush to, to, to occur. It's so oh, I bet there now. is. I'm so <laughs> bored. Oh. I don't believe that for a minute. No. Nobody's well, tried to kill me in like 13 years. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sure that you learned a lot as a police officer that you're still applying in, the, in your work today. But what happened that, that that career ended and you moved into something so completely different? So on the, I told you, like, as I was growing up, I always had a heart for God and motorcycles. And like, it was important to me to do things the way that God would want me to do them. And that's why I did the quotes for those of you listening on podcast. I did a little air quotes thing around. I said, you know, I did everything right. Um, I've repented for that now. I didn't do everything right. None of us do. <laughs> but at the time, I felt like I did culturally and religiously. Like I didn't smoke or drink or have sex or do any of those things. You know, we did things the way we were supposed to <laughs> as you're growing up, you know, the way that parents would want, the way the church would want, and they got the way God would want. And then four months after getting married, it all starts slowly falling apart. I'm working in the hood at night on the weekends. So naturally, the people at work are trying to kill me every night. And I was okay with that. <laughs> but then it slowly got to where our department was trying to throw us in jail as white male police officers, just mm. because we were white male. Mm -hmm. It just became like a very obviously disproportionate, we pay you to do this, but if you do it, we might throw you in jail for it. Mm. Wow. And this was in uh, what state? Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, it was about half a million people. And then at the same time, four months after getting married, my wife just shut down on me. And so with all that work stuff going on, which I could handle, but then coming home and not understanding what happened um, because she didn't like cheat on me. I didn't cheat on her. We didn't get mad at each other. It was literally just, she just stopped talking altogether. And so for the next two and a, two years, I tried different things for about three months at a time. I would talk to a pastor and then I would go and try something for three months to see if I'd get a response and I get absolutely nothing. Every time we talked, she wouldn't talk back. Um, I'd talk to Christian women to try and figure out, and I'd try something for three months. I'd talk to Christian men, and I'd try something for three months. And then eventually I got to where I was so frustrated that I started talking to non-Christian women and non-Christian men. Like, what do you think? You know, because I was getting no feedback whatsoever. Hmm. And so it got to a point where I was trying, 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 and it had been a year, year and a half of trying and I'm sitting here in my mind, I'm still thinking like, Lord, I did things right. I did what you wanted me to do my whole life. Like I've been that guy. Like I was that kid. I'm that guy. You know, like everybody looks up and goes, well, at least there's still some good men in the world when they saw me, you know, it's like, that's, that was the reputation I had. And it wasn't a facade. Like it's who I was. It was important to me. And so I couldn't wrap my head around why this was happening you know, with my wife I was like, we talked about everything ahead of time. We did everything, you know, and like agreed on things and had hard conversations. Like we did all of that. Like what made her just shut down completely? She would work hard at work all day long, come home, drop her bag at the front door and then sit down on the couch and have a bowl of cereal until she fell asleep and moved to bed. And that was it. I was, I was working from nine at night, to seven in the morning, Saturday night. So I would come home at seven in the morning, Sunday morning, and I wouldn't go to bed 
I'd get cleaned up and I'd wake her up for church. Well, then it turned into, uh, it was like trying to drag a teenager out of bed to drag him to church on Sunday. And I was like, ah, and I started laying down and going to bed too. I was Mm -hmm. like, there's nothing I can do here. It's not working. I'm just going to bed. And it was this slow fade, right? Of that was the time where God was first, but when I lost sight of trusting him and I would say, I don't Mm -hmm. see what's happening. It's been years. Like I'm tired of being ignored and everybody hating me, you know? And it's like, this is not who I was created to be, Mm -hmm. but I had started drinking because I was like, I've never been drinking. I'm going drinking. So literally just started going and hanging out and was drinking like every, our three days off. We worked four on, had three off. I started drinking. And as a police officer, when you're going out with a drinking crowd, you can get away with some stuff. Like Mm -hmm. it was a wild crowd, you know, and um, never drugs or anything else. I still had this feeling like God was there and he was pushing and pulling on me and I needed to come back. And um, I was just, I remember just pulling into my driveway at 7 30 in the morning and just sitting there just defeated and hearing him and feeling him poking saying come back and just swatting just being like no leave me alone like i know but no like i will but not now leave me alone just mad i was mad at everything resentful huh a little bit resentful yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i was like i couldn't understand it i think when we can't understand something is when it's the hardest to try and Mm -hmm. stick with what we know Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I think too, too, don't you, don't you feel like sort of the pain and the frustration that you're a guy who likes solutions to problems and you had a problem in your marriage that you couldn't fix. And most men do want to uh, yeah, solve problems. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and I mean, here you are, you thought everything was being done right and yet nothing was really working the way you'd hoped it would. So totally understandable why there would be pain and frustration and probably uh, using like most of us do, we use some of that as a justification then for mm-hmm. not making good decisions or for pulling away from God and not mm-hmm. really pushing through. So what, what happened next? And uh, because obviously you had a breakthrough somewhere back to God. I think it was when he was poking yep. and prodding. At Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So I started, I actually, um, I was to the point where I was literally picking fights in the hood, trying to mm-hmm. upset people and I would turn my back on them. And I was hoping that they would just kill me and get it over with. Um, I wouldn't have said I'm suicidal, but I was just like that tired and done. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I remember literally like somebody walked up like me and my wife at the time, we were walking through the mall and another officer I hadn't seen in a while walked up and he said, Jennings, how's it going? I said, honestly, man, I'm just effing waiting to die right in front of her. And she didn't say anything, never came to me afterwards, nothing. Mm. And I was just like, wow that bold face right in front of her. And like my buddy came to me later, he's like, dude, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm serious. And I was just like, to that point, well, we ended up getting divorced um, and going through that. And then I kept partying for a while. And my wife and I actually met at that time. She was on the police department. She was in my party crowd. Hmm. And so she was not a believer when we came together and she didn't know Christian Aaron at all. Um, and honestly, I was just kind of like running from God and just mad. And I was like, leave me alone. I don't care. Mm. And so I had my house on 10 acres. I was divorced. Me and her were dating and I was throwing the biggest parties on my days off. Cause we had 10 acres. So we'd have fires and, you know, do, do cool stuff. At one point I was like, all right, Lord, I'm tired. <laughs> like 
I know nothing's going to get better here. But the breakthrough was um, I had picked a fight in the hood and nothing happened. And I got back to my car and I was sitting there and I was I was disappointed that nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. Right. I was mm-hmm. like, why won't somebody just get this over with for me? That's where I was mentally with it. I was literally sitting there in the dark in my patrol car and I was mad just because nobody would end it for me. And it kind of sunk in that it was like, I'm going to end up dead in an alley somewhere. And I thought of like my whole life before that and how important God was and how I'd done like ministry in motocross and how the reaching people was my passion and reaching people is what I was created for. And I wanted to be a cop to help people and stuff. And now I'm sitting in my car mad because this person wouldn't kill me. And I was like, I'm either in and up dead in an alley somewhere or something has to change. And like, I was like, I'm made for more than that. I still got more in me. And like, that's, that's kind of what I thought. And at that point, that's when the next challenge starts, right. Of, of now what? Well, Aaron, I got to stop you really quickly because someone listening right now has been in a similar place, maybe not the same circumstances, but the same similar feeling or place. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you just going through that moment of, wait, I've got more in me. I mean, that's, that's a breakthrough moment. And so if someone's listening right now and they're kind of still in that place, there's hope, you know, just, just pause and listen to that still small, quiet voice and remember who you really are uh, and, and your identity in, in him. But it's interesting to me that, um, that you would go so far off the, the opposite direction from how you started um, because of, because of your wife's non-response and just how your life was looking there at home and how you couldn't fix it. And so I kind of want you to speak to that because again, men are wired to want to fix. And when men can't fix, does it just kind of start to wear you down like that? Your passion is to fix. Your passion is to help, especially when it's like your spouse or your girlfriend. We're wired to be protectors and to take care, Mm -hmm. right? And especially if we think we're doing things right and we get no response whatsoever, it's going to slowly just wear you down and drag you down. The problem is most of us trying to fix, we're trying to fix the wrong thing. There you go. Trying to fix her instead of fixing me. And I still don't know how I could have fixed myself any better at the time. At the same time, if I was doing everything that I could have to keep my eyes on God and fix myself, then would I have had that slow fade the other direction? Probably not. I am huge on extreme ownership. So I look at myself and I'm like, hey, not feeling bad. I'm just looking at how do we fix if we want to fix? Where do we fix, right? You can't fix other people. You can't change the government. You can't change anybody else. You can't change any of that stuff. You can change the way you look at it and what you do in it. And so at the time, you know, that's my journey I'm going through. I'm not looking in the at those right spots, right? And I'm not saying everything was her fault. Everything's two-sided, period. Sure. I guarantee I was doing stuff. I just couldn't figure out what it was. You know, and so it led to where we are. I have no regrets. I have no pain and shame that I hold on to. I've made peace with everything and I've moved on. I share my story. It doesn't matter to me whatsoever because I know other people are in the middle, right? They're in that spot where you can't see it. And it always comes back to working on yourself. And then the Bible says, you know, where there's no vision, the people perish. I had lost any vision of, of a future. I got the job. I got the house. I'm married. We did everything right. And now here's the end. You know, it's like you're unhappily married before you ever get divorced. And this is it until I die. That was the vision I had. That was it. And I was trying to change her so I could change the whole situation. Mm -hmm. 
and the focus was her, you know, and the focus was the job and the focus was the department and the politics and everything. It wasn't what can I do about it with her? I was doing what I could do about it for a while until I gave up, but I didn't change the job or anything else. And you can anytime you can drop a job and get another one anytime you want. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. What matters is like where we're going in that vision. Hmm. And so that breakthrough where I was sitting in the car and I thought I'm dead in an alley somewhere or something has to change. And I thought I was made for more than this. It was getting the right vision back in the forefront. You know, I looked back at my life and I was like, that's what I was created for. That passion, that zeal to go out and reach people and not care what anybody thought the church or anybody, you know, it was just to go and put people first. And that's not what I'm doing anymore. Now I'm, it's all focused on me and what she's doing wrong. And that was my mindset. And that was my picture. And so when I changed the picture, then it was like, what needs to happen? And so then it was like, when things started changing. So my wife and I, my now wife, um, we had a hard conversation because she had never, uh, she had grown up 27 years Catholic her dad's hundred percent Italian. So like they're Catholic period. Mm-hmm. And, um, she didn't really know why she just was, I had really honestly, like when me and her got together, like I said, I was not in a good place at all. I didn't expect anything. I just expected to just run from God and be ticked at life for a while. And then just figure the rest out as I got there. You know, I was not expecting to get together with a girl that I would try to keep. <laughs> mm. And, you know, it sounds bad mm. saying it that way, but that's the way it was. And I'm sure people are feeling the same way right now in certain situations. So it's like, there's nothing wrong with what you're thinking. It's where you're going. I had to have a conversation with her. And I was like, hey, I need to get back to where God's first in my life. And a lot of the things I'm doing is not stuff I should be doing. I was like, I have to be changing those things. And she's like, okay. You know, (laughs) to her, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, it sounds great. You know, things are going to be better. So it led to more conversations, you know. And one of the conversations we had was we've talked about marriage in the future. If that's even a talk about, I was like, um, God has called the man to be the leader of the household, the spiritual leader of the household. I cannot be the spiritual leader of a household that's going to the Catholic church. I said, there's some core beliefs that I just don't agree with. I say just personally, and, and I say, you know, I'm not going to a church, so I'm not saying give up yours and come to mine. I was like, I'm saying we need to find a middle ground that we together could build a life and a family on where God is at the forefront, period, above your church, above my church, above any of these churches. It has to be built on the word. And she was mad (laughs) because she was um, 27 years. You know, it's who she was. It was her identity. She didn't know any different. And so now she's been dating me for over a year and it's looking promising. You know, she's got a good job and retirement and benefits and a big house on 10 acres of land and I'm a good guy and it's all going good. And now, and now I'm she's like, got to change. Stop being Catholic. Now she's <laughs> got to change. Exactly. Yeah. And she was mad. Mm-hmm. And so there was this arguing back and forth and it wasn't no matter well, how she's delicate, Italian. Yeah. She's half Italian. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, so she likes to, she's fiery, passionate. <laughs> yeah. She's fiery. She's passionate. No matter how delicate I was, you know, it was she would get defensive and and mad. And then she actually had a, a breakthrough, if you will, right, where I changed everything. I quit drinking. We quit doing the stuff I was mm-hmm. doing and everything else and cleaned up and started talking the way I was supposed to and, you know, getting back to putting God. And she saw that and she came to a point where she said, I realize 
that in order for us to continue, we're going to have to change some things. And she goes, so I'm willing to look. My prayer at that time, I had actually left her alone completely. And I was like, I didn't respond to questions. I didn't have conversations. I didn't try to explain anything. I literally got to point where I left her alone because you couldn't change the other person, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Something I learned from uh, the year prior. I just worked on myself. And every time she came to me with a book or a question, I was like, hey, if you can show it to me in the Bible, I'm 100% with you. I was like, if you can, I was like, I don't know everything. I'm not going to claim to, if you can show me in the Bible, these things that the Catholic church believes, I'll go be Catholic with you. Just show it to me in the Bible. And she'd bring me books, you know, by the Pope and the priests and stuff. And I'd go, okay, that's, that's great. That looks awesome. I'd flip the book over and I go, it was written by Pope so-and-so. Can you, he's preaching from the Bible that we say we're reading. So could you show me where that is in the Bible? Mm. Cause I just love to see like where it's at. And I just left it at that. It was always my pusher back to the word and then just model what it looks like um, and lead properly. And so she actually had an experience with God herself. Mm. So cool. You know, Beautiful. God I love that. reached her. I so guess. Fast right. forward a little bit, Aaron. So you, you guys had this very healthy spiritual exchange of, you know, kind of getting to the same place in your belief system. That happened. You guys got married uh, and you're moving out of becoming a police officer into something else. And you talk about a story where you were uh, on a mission field at a trip. Bring us up to that place, because I think what happened there led you to a whole nother place that most people listening right now would say, well, how did he go from (laughs) being a police officer, divorced, (laughs) miserable, you know, just kind of turning on God, then he meets this person. Now they got to go through this whole exchange of getting her to the same place. And then he's on the mission field. So what happened? So from that point where she had an actual encounter with God, it happens so much quicker when God gets, when you force somebody's uh, transition, you know, force them to say that prayer so that they can be saved. It's like, they, it's, it's not saying it's not genuine or anything else, but naturally like we're doing what we can in our own, our own, um, you know, in our flesh. Yeah. But it's like when God grabs a hold of somebody like five months later, the month of May, we quit the police department, sold the houses, got married and left the country as missionaries in one month, the month of May. That's a pretty extreme change. God yeah. is an accelerator. <laughs> it's an accelerator. Yeah. So like she was, you know, she just was done drinking. She was done like with everything, like mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit had an encounter and it just changed. And so then it was like, both of us were just, um, I had been praying. I was like, Lord, I need to change. I don't care what it is, but right now is not healthy, like nothing here. And so I'm game for anything that you do. Let's just do something. Cause you know, I'm in, I'm in, but man, there's too much here that drags me down, drags me backwards. And I don't, I don't even want it there. And so to me, again, it was that God first, it wasn't the house, the retirement, the benefits and everything. It was my dream house. None of that stuff. It was Mm. God first. And he said, okay, I actually have to back up to go forward. All right. Well, this may turn into a four hour podcast. I told you, I told you, I'm sorry. (laughs) How much time do I have left? Because I will. You're you're out. You're out. No, I'm just kidding. But let's. (laughs) So jumping back a little bit before my wife and I had that conversation, I was ready to turn my life and get back where God first. I was like, Lord, you know, whatever. I was sitting in my patrol car. I was filling out paperwork. I had the radios turned down low and it was like somebody turned the radio up loud And it was like calling all carpenters, handyman, sheet rockers. And I did all that stuff growing up. So I turned the radio up and it was an eight days of hope mission trip going to Nashville to rebuild from the flood. 
And it was literally like less than two weeks away. I had less than five years on the department. So I'm still rookie status. And I worked Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, every weekend. And it was over Thanksgiving. And so I was like, felt like God was saying, go to this mission trip. And I was like, I'd have to get Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday off. And the next Friday, Saturday over Thanksgiving weekend in rookie status. You don't get weekends off. But I was like, I know how this works. If you want me there, let's go. And so I went in and I told my sergeant, I'm like, hey, I need not this weekend, but next weekend. I need that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and the next Friday, Saturday off. And he just laughed. He's like, get out of my office. I'm like, just do me a favor and check. And He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And he called me in later. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but we're fully staffed. So I guess if you want off, you can. I was like, yeah, yeah, I figured. Write me down. So I went to this mission trip and the first, I slept in the cab of my truck, just put God first, ignored everybody else. I had such a bad attitude still at that time, you know? The first three projects I worked on, God was working on my attitude. And the fourth one belonged to a pastor from Thailand. And so six months, um, eight months later, six to eight months, somewhere right in there. um, During that time was when I was turning things around and my wife and I were having these conversations and getting God first. And God said, sell and go to Thailand. And I was like, okay, but if all, if at all, all possible, I would love it if she could come with me because we were arguing at that time Mm -hmm. when God said, sell out and go to Thailand. And so I just kind of like felt it out one day. I was like, what do you, what would you think if we, I don't know, quit the job, sold everything and just went and traveled the country. So that was when I was literally like just praying for her and just pushing her back to the word. God had that encounter with her, you know, and then we changed things and took off as missionaries. So we had sold out, we had sold out and quit everything, you know, and put God first and took off. And um, at that point, or since then, I guess, We've added the two daughters and we've been to 11 countries and lived in Thailand. And um, we moved with one-way tickets to Thailand. And when we got to Thailand, we found out a Buddhist lady had built us a place to stay and was going to let us live there for free the whole time we were there. But nothing nothing goes as planned. No, yeah, right. Yeah. And and but just your your level of faith, uh, especially in in the season, the the latter season of I mean, you had it early on and then you kind of dismissed your your faith for a while and then you you caught fire again and just man, the way God has just moved in your life and how uh, just your obedience mm-hmm. uh is is uh you know, just creating a ripple effect, um, because yeah. I know that you have inspired so many just by, um, being obedient and doing what you're doing. So now, uh, you know, you're no longer a missionary, but now you are on a mission to, mm-hmm. uh, to help others with their mission and yep. to help them earn a, an abundance, right. That God wants yeah. for them. Um, because you, you have always wanted to help people, but now it's mm-hmm. in systems and, and, uh, yeah. and being a strategy coach. <laughs> I mean, that's like out of left field too. (laughs) Yeah, this actually came from missions. So that we sold everything, quit our jobs, left the country as missionaries. Seven days later, we were standing in the slums of Kenya. And I remember there was people living in trash igloos. And there was a guy literally laying there in the mud outside of his trash igloos and mud houses. And he was dying. And I was like, what's going on with this guy? And they're like, well, he's dying. But the government won't do anything and nobody has any money. And we had met 12 other Americans there, 12 or 14, I forget. And we were able to scrape together $260 and fed 50 people in the slums for two weeks. And I remember everybody being like, wow, that was great. You know, oh, yay. And I remember thinking that's ridiculous. 
like I didn't say it to them, but this is what was going on in my head was this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. How 12 Americans come up with 260 bucks. You got to be kidding me. Right. Like, and you're proud of it. I mean, like that dude's dead in the mud, period. We know that's happening. And then even after that, they still have the same dirty water. They're still living in trash igloos. They still don't have any food after that two weeks. They haven't been taught anything. Nothing has happened. You gave them food for two weeks and not like, right. and then not what? to throw that out. Right. But right. then what, right. Is mm-hmm. that really helping people, you know, like teach them to fish, right. Don't give them the fish. And so I remember thinking like, how do we do more? Like, what if I was standing here as the rich missionary instead of a broke one? Mm-hmm. That's seven days into full-time <clears throat> missions. That's what I thought. And we were staying at an orphanage. I love that. I want you to say that again, Mm -hmm. because (laughs) there is someone listening that really needs to hear that. Say that whole line all over again. What if I was standing here as a rich missionary instead of a broke one? Yeah. (laughs) You think about what we would change. Exactly. Wiped out those trash igloos. We'd have dug a well. We'd have took the dude to the hospital. It would have Mm -hmm. been a completely different experience for everybody. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been more of me. It would have been more of love of God shown through everything. They won't remember me, but they would definitely remember what we left behind. And we went back to the orphanage where she had acquired 10 acres over 20 plus years, um, built a guest house. They had schools and a church and a soccer field and the kitchen and dorms, everything else. She was trying to get one of the ladies in our group to take over because she wanted to retire. And I remember thinking, what if she can't? And then as we continued into our missions, I thought, all these missionaries are being taught to raise your two years support, go do your mission. And then when you're done with missions, go back to working, go build your family and your life and then retire. And I just thought, what if she can't find somebody to take over this 10 acres, the 125 kids she's rescued from the streets, go back to the streets. The government snatches her land back. The locals don't know how to do anything. The locals after 20 plus years would sit there and wait for the next round of missionaries to come in with stuff. They'd cheer dance, put on a show, and then they would sit down and wait for the next ones. After 20 plus years, that's what they knew. And I knew nothing of systems and strategy at that time, but that's what sparked it. Because I thought, what if she taught the locals how to do this? Mm -hmm. What if her plane goes down when she's flying back to fund this thing? They don't even know. They're just going to eat the remaining livestock they have, and then they're headed back to the streets. Like, what if they learned how to use this many chickens to reproduce and these for eggs and these for eating and these for selling. Like what if they knew how to create their own money through market and their own food through what they were growing and they could sustain themselves, then they wouldn't need the American flying back and forth. And sustain like generations to come. Yeah. Yeah, Like what if, and then as we went through missions, I realized (laughs) it's what all of us do and we're capable of more. God's called us to multiply, but we're not really taught that. We're taught to be obedient, but we're not really taught to multiply much. You know, it was, I was obedient to move to Thailand, but there was a lot that I could have done with all that time and resources that God gave me while I was there. Doesn't mean he's unhappy or anything else, but it does mean that if I was focused on him and what the Bible says about multiplying, I could have done more or left it in a better spot or reached more people or taught more people to reach more people, make mm. disciples that make disciples that make disciples. <laughs> This is a recurring thing, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop with you just going and helping and then coming back. It's supposed mm-hmm. to, they're supposed to continue on. And that's really what spurred the, the system's thought process. I think that's great because again, you, you're seeing these problems that for the locals seemed unsolvable, but God has gifted you with common sense. God has gifted you with a passion to make Christ known. 
and to put God first in everything. And so the pragmatic part of you starts to take over, which I think is just a, a great way to do missionary work anywhere we are. You know, see the need, put God first, bring practical solutions to it, depend upon God for all of the things that you can't do on your own and go make it happen. So you went from the mission field determined that I'm going to bring in systems and processes and figure out ways to help people help themselves. And that's led you now into a pretty successful business where you're, you're helping other believers multiply their, their impact and their resources by teaching them some pretty basic things and even handing off some systems and processes to them. It all spawned there from what if we could systematize missions to where they were duplicatable? What if I could teach yeah. hmm. people how to go and do this in other parts of Thailand while I'm here, right? What if I go home and it continued, right? Like, and I thought about that across all missions. Um, and that was really like the driving force. And then as I continued to learn and continued to grow, I realized everything I knew about what God says about money and multiplication was wrong. Um, I was brought up, save, skimp, try mm -hmm. to get by and live, you know, meager and, and protect. And it was always under the, under the disguise of stewardship. Um, but it's not talked about in the Bible. Saving is not a good principle. It's actually used as like a punishment, like poverty will come on you from laziness, you know? <clears throat> and like, when I started learning this stuff, there was so much of it that I was just like, and as I started learning, like, when Jesus was born, he was instantly a millionaire. You know, the, the gifts that were given, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they estimate to be worth three to $5 million. And there's so many of the stories that would have made more sense. Like, why does Jesus have a treasurer if he doesn't have any treasures? You know I mean? Like <laughs> the fact was money didn't matter. Just like our work doesn't matter and our money doesn't matter. And these possessions don't matter. It's worldly stuff. We should use it to multiply the kingdom which is what he did. He gave and he did things. And then he gave it up and left to go do his ministry because it didn't mean it didn't mean anything. God said, go. And he's like, okay, he left it all. And he went, right. What if we did the same? Mm, yeah. What if, what if we, we did these tools? Yeah. You know? What if we did the same? That's, that's a good That's point. right, Aaron. Well, I, I'm so impressed with, you know, just how God doesn't waste anything. Yeah. Right. And, and it's displayed through just the, the journey of your life and how it's brought you to such a time as this to help multiply in a different way um, with, with, you know, Christian entrepreneurs so that they can go and, and, and do what they need to do, but be able to um, have the, the resources so that they can help and, mm -hmm. and be of assistance. And I, I love that all that got spurred along the way. And, um, and you're very, you're very much a systematic uh, uh, guy in the way that you think. And I know you've worked with Todd and it's just been a beautiful um, uh, relationship, but, but how you have systematically planned things out and you've done this for many businesses and many, um, you know, different people uh, across the country. And it's just, it's awesome because I know your heart behind it and yeah. it's, it's making a big difference. Well, and, and again, just thank you for inspiring us to just keep God first. If you yep. put God first, all this other stuff is going to make sense and it's going to work out yep. and it's going to drive you. One, one quick thing from you, Aaron, you, you mentioned um, that a lot of times you'll tell people or encourage people that you need to take what God's given you seriously enough so that you'll do something about it. What do you mean by that? What are you doing with the stuff God's given you? Because <laughs> simply I put, yeah. Answer that question. Put, I mean, if we just <laughs> look at everything, what are you doing with it? Which is your time, your car, your, mm. you know, if you've been given a position at your church, your church, if you got a home group, are you showing up 15 minutes beforehand, reading over something and winging it? 
that what you do with what God gave you? Your time, are you blocking it, paying attention to it, respecting it, hmm. using it efficiently so that you can get things done that God has laid out for you to do? Or are you wasting it running around chasing fires all day? When God gave you money, are you multiplying it? Are you doing anything with it? Or are you literally just burning it on whatever jumps in front of you for the day? Like, look at everything. I look at my daughters and I'm like, how am I stewarding, if you will? How am I treating that, right? As that is a resource that was given to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. we live in Fort Myers when the hurricane hit. We were on the beach the next morning before a lot of the um, EMTs and fire trucks were down at the beach. My girls were walking the beach with my wife and I was walking through buildings just seeing if anybody was stuck. Mm. They are not foreign to the idea of helping people. The little one turned seven, uh, turned seven months old, I think, seven or eight months old in the hill tribes of Burma, north of Thailand, because God gave us brains. So we gathered some stuff together and we found the right people and we made our way to Thailand and we took shoes to people that didn't have shoes and we put on a Bible camp mm. for people that hadn't even seen tourists before. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. You know, like, what are you doing with what God's mm. giving yeah. you? Yeah. What are you doing if with it's what God's actually you? a serious it's a serious question. Yeah. You've been yeah. put on this earth not to just do stuff. Yeah. So if you've been given something, do you take it serious? Hmm. Well, I think that's a question to end this podcast on. And you may be convict convicting a few people listening. Uh, you might be convicting us a little bit, <laughs> um, but it's, it's so good. And I love that um, God is using you in a powerful way. How can people find out about you and what you do? What, what is a, uh, where's a website that they can go to? Um, just friend me on Facebook or, um, fastscalability.com. There you go. Fastscalability.com. That's what I was looking for. So if you are an entrepreneur uh, and looking to take things and multiply in a greater way, then uh, reach out to Aaron. But Aaron, we love your breakthrough stories because it's not just one, but it's stories. And thank you for just sharing your heart and your authenticity with us. And uh, God bless you. And and, uh, he's got so much more for your journey here. He's not done with Aaron yet. (laughs) Nope. I still got more in me. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Thanks for using what he's given you. (laughs) Yeah. All right, man. Blessings. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me in guys. Have a good one. Take care. You too. Okay. That's, that's great. You know, he is an example of, of just going for it really. And and yet he's also example of being just, uh, you know, human, like we, we all get in those stuck places at times and we need to remember who we are in Christ yeah. and, 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 he's put got, God and we, first. we've got yeah. more, we've got more. And you put God first in everything. I mean, yeah. in motocross racing, he put yeah. God first and yeah. God gave him influence to being a police officer, to a full-time missionary, to now running his business and helping other entrepreneurs. Yeah. And there's something to be said about towards the end of our interview, the inventory that we started to go through together when he's asking us to ask ourselves, how am I using and then fill in the blank, mm-hmm. you know, my, my money, my time, my relationships, am I using these for God's glory and for good things? Yeah. And speaking of good things, we believe it's a good thing that we're sharing these stories with you, these breakthrough stories. That's yeah. why we love uh, bringing uh, your biggest breakthrough to you. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, but we're also very passionate about mm-hmm. Uh, breakthroughs in other uh, ways uh, with with what I do um, with with visibly fit with helping women break through in their health and their wellness and mind body and spirit and and Todd um, you know you help men break through in in different areas through fit, fitness faith finances family 
And uh, you really love to mentor men. And yeah. you know, if you are in a place where you want to have a breakthrough in those areas, then reach out to us. You can email me at wendy at wendypet.com or Todd at toddisburner.com. That's right. And That's uh, we'd right. love to hear from you. So yeah, get in thanks. Touch. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. We will catch you next time. Take care. Head on over to yourbiggestbreakthrough.com where you'll find some free resources and information and a place where you can comment and we would love to dialogue with you there. So thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.